Hey everyone, this is Kate from the Your Courageous Life podcast, and this is still the Your Courageous Life podcast, but I am partnering with my friend Andy Sewell for a special nine-part series focusing exclusively on lessons from my book, The Courage Habit. Listen in as we talk about how you can apply the psychology of courage and the neuroscience of habit formation to your life to create lasting behavioral changes. If you've ever wondered how someone can learn the skill of being more courageous in their life, this special Courage Habit series that I'm embedding within the larger Your Courageous Life podcast is it. It's going to have a little Courage Habit themed intro outro, but again, it's still the Your Courageous Life podcast, just a special little nine part series where we do a deep dive into the Courage Habit and how you can apply it to your life. Let's get started. Welcome to the Courage Habit Podcast, an exploration of the Courage Habit, the book and program designed to break the fear-based habits holding you back and replace them with the courage-based habits to enjoy the life you want. The Courage Habit was written by Kate Swoboda. She's a life coach, creator of YourCourageousLife.com, and director of the Courageous Living Coach Certification Program. In this limited series podcast, I'll be asking her questions about the book and her experiences teaching her techniques. And he's Andy Sewell, an audio producer who has started a new career after two decades of corporate work. Andy is an amazing storyteller, he's ferociously curious, and he's someone who has read The Courage Habit. So he was the perfect person to ask about hosting The Courage Habit podcast. You can learn more about Andy at audioephemera.com. Each episode of the series is a continuation of our conversation. If this is your first time listening, please subscribe to the podcast so you can start from the beginning. Thank you for joining us, and let's get back to the conversation. Kate, thanks for joining me again. And I wanted to pick up on something that we talked about in previous conversations about setting a routine in the morning or when you start off your day and keeping that as kind of a keystone and in getting into your getting into to better days, better productive days. And what I want to ask about is when that routine gets disrupted. By example, this morning of all times, I got a little thrown off on my morning, my timing was off, and I ended up putting off my meditation until well into my morning routine. And it felt a little like a loss, a little bit like I had failed something and I kind of felt derailed. And it sure got back onto the rails when I got back to my meditation routine. But I wanted to ask about those little moments where it feels like your entire day can be derailed and how to kind of get past those and just get back on center. Is that something that happens a lot? Totally. I mean, that's that's life for every average human being. And I think this is a great place to talk about the role habit formation can play, not in the things you do, but in your way of being. Because people typically think of habits, creating certain habits, they, they're only thinking of the tasks and meditation is a great example of that. And absolutely, routines help. They are great. Routines as things you do, like meditate, exercise, eat vegetables, brush your teeth, remember to call your mother. Those are all good things to do um, and they're great routines, but they're all doing. And there's a way that I like to look at the habit formation as being both about the doing and a way of being. So in essence, this routine you have around meditation to me is not the highest goal that you could have. Tick, I did my meditation today. Like the highest goal 
in my own life that I would want for my clients, that I would want for you, that I would want for my friends, that I would want for the world are this idea that the routines, the tools that we use around habit formation can be used to get ourselves back up after we have done something where, whether through circumstances outside of ourselves or our own, you know, lack of uh, planning or time management, whatever it might be, we use those same habits of accessing the body, listening without attachment, reframing limiting stories, reaching out and connecting with community to mentally shift. So it's about, okay, all right, here I am. I noticed that I, in your example, missed my daily meditation. And I know that it has a certain consequence for lack of a better word in my life. There's this place that my life will go to, or that my day might shift into or out of depending on whether or not I meditate each day. The idea here is that, yeah, of course it's great, especially if you know that meditation is really helpful for you to say, how can I not repeat this? Because I don't want to get into the habit of not doing this thing that is actually good for me. And it instead becomes, all right, I notice I'm pretty frustrated with myself and that inner critic gets activated again. Like, oh God, you know, you could have planned your time better or, or sometimes the critic is an attack. Sometimes the critic is a critical voice. that's just like, well, now the day is going to suck. It's not an attack on you. It's a a pronouncement or a prediction for what the day is going to be. Well, that too is just a story and you are the one who gets to choose what stories you do or do not believe. You're the one who decides skipping meditation means my day sucks or skipping meditation is just skipping meditation. So it's the same system of looking at where the place is where I go to a fear-based place, fear-based as in the day is going to suck because I didn't do this thing. The project is going to suck because I didn't hit the deadline. My marriage is not going to recover because of this argument. I'm a crappy parent because I snapped at my kid. Whatever it is that comes up, it's not just I have a goal to not snap at my kid, to not argue with my partner, to make a deadline on time, to meditate daily. It's my way of being that even when I miss the mark, because I'm human and I'm going to miss the mark, I don't beat up on myself. I don't go to that fear-based place of thinking the only way to turn it around is to beat myself up into turning it around. I go into a place that's operating from an essential trust in who I am as a good person doing the best I can, wanting to live a better life. And if I want to live a better life, when I make mistakes or when things happen, how's that? what's the best route to that? Beating up on myself and going back into that fear-based pattern or interrupting that as soon as I notice that I'm going into that fear-based pattern and saying, hold on a minute, what do I need to do for myself right now? What tool can I use to step into more courage? I think that was exactly it. That was uh, what my initial reaction was. Well, now there goes the day and how am I going to arrange? So in my head, I kind of quickly went through the bullet points of things that needed to get done and the order they needed to get done and started adjusting them to accommodate for the fact that I had kind of had a false start. And I didn't think that I should, you know, rely on the other kind of tools. And I honestly, when I felt like I was missing my routine, I never would have thought that that was an inner critic that was saying, now your day's off. I completely thought that was just an outcome that was because of my behavior. I kind of tied it to my behavior and now I kind of get it that that was just another instance in which this inner critic can kind of guide my thoughts on how things are going to be. 
playing out for the rest of the day. Well, it's, it's listening without attachment is this, this piece, because when we get attached to the idea that X has to automatically mean Y, that's when things get really funky. I mean, I don't know how your day's going to go today, but you know, Andy, what if today's the day that you need to go buy a lottery ticket? <laughs> and the fact that you didn't do your routine exactly as it is means that you are going to be in line at the moment that the cashier pulls out the winning numbers. By the way, right. I think it would be a really fun thing if you actually did go buy a lottery ticket today <laughs> just to see. But like, you know, or what if today's the day you meet the love of your life? Or what if today, you know, like, and if your day had started any differently, it would not have happened that way. We just can't know. And the more that we can try to stay in, in use these, these tools to stay in the present moment rather than dwelling on the past or making a prognostication about what the future is going to be that, you know, frankly, we don't know and can't control. What if, right? It, it, yeah. I mean, this is the magic of living from this place of openness and possibility. And this is why it's so helpful to, make it a habit to shift out of the automatic default of womp womp, which is so natural for us to go to. We're just, you know, that critic is just trying to protect us, but it, it it's a short-term protect protection. What we really think, want is the bigger way of being. And that's part of it is identifying for me at least is that often critic is, is a hard word. I think of a person kind of far off at distance without all the information making absolute judgments on my behavior and the inner critic being a version of that, that it's somebody that has like a higher authority. They're right, I guess is the short way of putting it. But I also am having a hard time really placing the value of that critic. And sometimes you talk about the idea that critic is a lousy friend and that best friend with lousy communication skills. And that I want to explore that because it's not intended to be a trickster, but it is, it can be a friend. The critic can give you information that you should consume and, and, and think about, but it doesn't dictate where you're at or who you are as a person. And I think that part I'd like to suss in a little bit. How did you decide that it was a best friend with lousy intentions? Well, the, I got that idea. It's your best friend with lousy communication skills from Matthew Marzell who uh, was my coach for many, many years, and we are still connected and friends. And he's actually the, I mean, we're not particularly religious, but we wanted him to have a role in our daughter's life. And so we asked him to be her godparent, just to kind of give, give a role for a non-blood relative. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and basically I had a uh session where I was quite proud of myself walking into the session. I, I had had a situation come up where my critic had been very activated and I go into this session with him and I'm like, I had this critic stuff come up and I just told my critic to shut the, you know, up and like go away and leave me alone. And I stood up for myself and he had this kind of odd response, which was, ouch, and I'm like, huh? Ouch. I, I, I told it, I told it to go away. I kicked its ass. I did it. He's like, yeah. And he said, your, your critic is not the enemy. It's your best friend with lousy communication skills. It is really invested in your survival and it is always on the lookout for a potential threat. And that was a really pivotal session for me because that's when I started to see that 
it was absolutely right. That the critic was really big and scary, but always it, at its root, it was invested in trying to save me from embarrassment, failure, rejection, or really any experience that was going to threaten to annihilate a sense of identity or me feeling like I was okay in the world. And if it has to tell me that I'm a stupid piece of crap to get me to not do something, <laughs> it'll do that To if that if the risk is that great. And that's why the more of a risk, the more outside of someone's comfort zone the situation is, the louder the critic will get. And critics operate in a lot of different ways. I know for some people, they say, well, my critic doesn't get loud, but but like my somatic system kind of gets hijacked by the critic where I can't think of what to say or I'm stuttering or you know, and, and so certainly that's also a valid way that the critic tries to keep you from being wounded. If you're about to go up to somebody who is the most conventionally attractive person in the world and ask them out on a date and your critic is worried, you're going to make a fool out of yourself. And it's like, the less you say, the better, let's just keep you from saying much at all. Um, and some people's critics are really seductive saboteurs, which is very sneaky. They come in and they're very logical and they'll, they'll, you know, you, you worked really hard this morning on that project and, you know, just take the day off. It's, it's fine, but that's totally a setup or, you know, it's, it's really a take the day off and it's, it's sneaky because it's really just trying to keep you from doing the thing that again, might be the big emotional risk. We're all talking about emotional risk here. Most of the time, unless you're about to jump out of an airplane and, you know, parachute down or something and your critic is going, this is stupid. You're going to kill yourself. That's a little bit different than the emotional risk that's really at the root of all of this. So once I started to look at the critic differently, probably the biggest aha I had, which was not something Matthew Marzell had said to me, but was the connection I made, was that the critic in most people's heads sounds very mean and abusive. And that if I hit back and tell the critic, well, shut up, go away. I'm going to kick your ass. I myself am now embodying the very abuse I seek to stop. In essence, I am becoming the abuser. And so that really landed for me that I would never treat my child to try to teach her. Um, and of course, all this happened before I was a parent, but just thinking ahead to, I knew I wanted to be a mother. I would never want my child to be taught how to, for all intents and purposes, do the right thing in the world or do things in the name of what she wants by telling her, what do you think you're doing? Come on. You know, you can't do that. Come on. You just look stupid. You know, that like I would never do that. Why would I do it to myself? And if I really am interested in living a life where I completely and totally unconditionally love myself, and I think we all are interested on, even if it feels vulnerable to admit to living that life, it's fundamentally impossible to do. If you say, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to love myself. I'm going to treat myself well. I'm going to respect myself. Oh, but except for this piece over here, that's the critic. That can go after yeah. It doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't work. I was thinking about in terms of... of uh almost identifying with the critic. And I don't know if it's helpful. Uh, maybe it's too much of an armchair psychology to go down, but what is the motivation of a critic to give you information to stop you from doing something other than to protect you? And I understand that it would be under fear, 
that they want you, meaning the critic, doesn't want you to do a certain behavior because they're afraid you'll fail or they're afraid that you won't achieve what you want to achieve. And it's not always delivered in this way of you are not going to do this, but please don't do this. It's it's another version of ourself. And how do we at once identify with that critic, almost with empathy, but then also put aside the message they're trying to deliver and carry on with what we know is the better intent? How do we decide to kind of split the hairs between the critic and ourselves? Where does it end and where do we begin? Well, I think it's boundaries. And you and I have done an exercise called Redo Please. And with Redo Please, it's in the Courage Habit book so people can do it on their own. I tend to think it's most helpful to do with somebody else willing to dialogue with you. But the idea is Redo Please. I am absolutely open to hearing what it is you have to say, but it has to be phrased respectfully. And the metaphor I'll often use would be a child having a temper tantrum. When a child is having a temper tantrum and it is screaming things at you and kicking 100%, I would never say, oh, you know, it's just fine. The the poor little kid, I identify with the fact that it's, that this child is just, you know, it's totally taxed right now and emotionally doesn't have the skill set for dealing, managing its emotions. So it's just okay. It can kick me in the head and it can call me names and you know, it can go to school and pull other kids' hair because emotions are natural and, and kids need to express their emotions, which if I may step on a parenting soapbox for just a teensy little <laughs> second, I kind Please of do. feel like is, <laughs> is the parenting ethos that has taken over certain parts of the world, like say Northern California, where I no longer live. And it's just like, wait, hold on. What? No, we don't want to beat kids up for their emotions. And 100% kids have a limited skill set with their emotions. And that's why they do things like hit, kick, scream, take things away, etc. when they don't know how to deal with the emotions that they face. But they need boundaries. And I can, I, I think a lot of this really became clear to me when I became a parent. And I'm grateful that the work began before I became a parent because One thing I can see in my own daughter, who's now six, and thankfully there are not a lot of temper tantrums these days, but when she was two or three, I could always see that any time she went to that place of a temper tantrum, it was because she was just emotionally taxed. I could feel the compassion for her that she was hungry or she didn't know how to deal with the frustration of not getting the things she wanted and all of that. I I can have compassion for what it's like to be in that place. But it is not okay for her to go to daycare and hit other kids when somebody else is playing with the toys she wants. That's a boundary she actually needs. And so the the ability to say to a child, oh my gosh, honey, I know, that's really hard. I'm so sorry. You know, like we we were going to go see Santa. I'm remembering a a time she got really upset. We were going to go see Santa and Santa was not at the designated point, right? Uh And And she's upset and she's crying and she's frustrated. And I, it's like, instead of going, well, what do you want me to do about it? You know, stop crying. It's not my fault. Santa isn't in like making her wrong for what she feels. It's, oh, I know I'm so disappointed. I'm frustrated too. Ah, we went all the way over here and Santa wasn't here. Grr. And and do you want to stomp on the ground? Do you, do you want to, you know, scream into a stuffy for a second? do you need a hug right now? Like what, like the emotion is okay. What do we need to process the emotion? And a lot of times she'd take the intervention. Yeah. I want to stomp on the ground. But there were certainly times where she didn't. And and because she's a kid, 
And she'd maybe, we'd get back into the car and she's, I'm having this image of her like kicking the seat in front of her, like losing it. And me pulling over the car and looking at her and going, no, you cannot kick the car right now. Do you want to get out and stomp on the ground? Do you want to do that when we get home? No. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes it was just sitting with her while she felt what she needed to feel. Just sitting with her while she was crying and not trying to make her stop, but just, I know, honey. I know it's really hard, but yeah, there's got to be a boundary around things like abuse. And when the critic is abusive to you, there needs to be, and this is why I think the redo please language can be so helpful. Hold on a second, you know, redo please. I'm, I'm open to hearing what you have to say. I actually trust that you're trying to tell me something really important. That's a concern for you has to be phrased respectfully. And just imagine Every marriage, every workplace, (laughs) if that was the, like, I'll talk to you about this thing you're frustrated about, but it has to be done respectfully. That would change the world. But I think that's hard because uh, one thing you do talk about, and it it really rings true with me, is that we have kind of a nice little toolkit of reactions to the critic. Um, I think you, like one of them you talk about is avoiding, which is something that I'm susceptible to. So I will have a task or oftentimes it's a list of tasks that have to happen. And it sounds perfectly accessible for me to do. And once I get going on it, it's going to be a big dive focus hours long of, of these efforts. And then I decide I'm going to go wash the dishes instead, or I decide that I'm not going to face the task. And pretty soon it doesn't take long. I don't have to do the task anymore because I put it off so much that I'm going to just do it again tomorrow. And I would have seen that as my own internal um, wanting to av- avoid the critic. I totally get that, but I don't know how to approach the critic in terms in those moments where it's really wanting me to do something that my body feels like I want to avoid, how to look at the critic with that empathy and say, let's restart this. And that's, that's sometimes a harder skill to pull out so easily when I feel like I'm doing what the critic really wants me to do because that feels good. It satiates me. And um, sometimes that's a boundary it's hard to put up to say, I'm not going to do this for your benefit. Um, does that make any sense? I get conflicted with who am I trying to please at this moment? Well, okay. So why do you think critic would have you, you said you had a big long list and then it sounds like a self-sabotage move to then go to, you know, do the dishes or whatever it's going to be. That's different than the list. And then your critic gets you, zings you for that. So yeah. the critic can be a shapeshifter. It's a saboteur in one moment, and then it's a critical, you didn't do enough in another moment. So what's the need that the critic is trying to get met when the idea pops into your head, let's take this this break and, and go do the dishes? Um, one of them that I absolutely viscerally can remember is a feeling of you are not prepared enough to get through this. You're going to get some portion of the way down this task and you're going to find that you're not prepared and you might as well just not start until it ruminates a little bit longer or you have more time to, to set it up. It, it feels like it's setting me up to be in a position to be forced to do it in a procrastinating sense. So you're better off if there's more pressure. Now is not the time. You have so many other things that need to get done first. Then you can get to the task. It's reprioritizing me because it makes me feel like I'm not really, really prepared. But what I recognize is it's not that, it's that there might be something I don't know. There might be something I might need to carry out the task, something like doing taxes. I need all these things to put together. But if I get just the ball rolling, I know that all those things are going to fall into place. But for some reason, it's much easier than have to deal with 
looking at yourself in terms of numbers, an example of taxes, and have to put all those things together and mire yourself in, in this ritual that we have to do on an annual basis. And the critic wins because it is uncomfortable to sit there and go through all those steps that you have to get through to get all your taxes done. And the, and the critic's right. I get some portion in. I need a thing. I have to stop. I was planning to get this done in a certain period of time, and now I'm stuck halfway done with a project. I should have just done the dishes and started this tomorrow when I had more time to think about it. That's usually how that plays out. The critic kind of win delays it enough. But now I'm in a zone where I'm under pressure. There are immovable deadlines that I am competing with. And the critic seems to disappear. And I feel a little bit left alone trying to solve all these problems without any sort of friend along the way to help me. Yeah, there are two moments in what you just described that I would say, you know, invite you to get curious about. One is just noticing the moment when the short, in the short term, the procrastination, the stopping of the task, like doing taxes to go do the dishes brings relief. And just really giving yourself some compassion around the fact that your critic is trying to get a need met. It feels overwhelming to do this task like the taxes that I don't totally feel like I know what I'm doing. And by the way, money is a hot button issue for just about all of us. And the idea of having a surprise tax bill is very, very stressful. So it's really pretty human that when we don't feel up to a task, (laughs) you know, that the critic gets really, really loud, especially if it's a complex issue, like how we relate to money. So there's this moment when the critic is not your enemy. It's your best friend with lousy communication skills. It's your best friend trying to decrease some of the stress you're feeling by saying, hey, go do the dishes because you are not up to this. Go do the dishes. I'm trying to preserve your sense of sanity, your anxiety, all of that by telling you to stop doing this thing and go do the dishes. And then later, when you describe this experience, the other moment to get curious about is the moment when your critic comes up and because maybe you pushed through or you tried to do it and you go, the critic's going, oh, see, now you're stuck halfway. You're halfway done. And, and uh, yeah. this is the other moment. Again, beyond the, the you know, the habit formation or habit, uh, the tools of habit formation used for the task, the doing, it being about your way of being. In that moment, the stress comes up again. Look at this. You're halfway done. God, I told you. Shouldn't have even done it that way. Okay, hold on a second. Let me access the body. What am I, what's the fear I have here? Like probably a fear of owing a lot of money or not getting the taxes done on time and having a penalty. It's also just a fear of, and this is, might be a low grade fear for someone, but just, I don't like feeling out of my depth. I don't like feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. I, who, who likes that feeling? I mean, I'm, I'm sitting over here. I'm the, wrote the book on courageous habits and I don't like that feeling, you know? So I, I don't, and you know, the goal is not to like somehow like that feeling. The goal, if there is one, is to step into a way of being that allows for that feeling without derailing everything else and without putting yourself down in the process. So getting curious about that moment, let me access the body. What am I feeling? What is the, uh, how can I listen without attachment? Because there's a pronouncement, you're stuck halfway done. The underlying thing is you met, you did it wrong, which is a criticism in terms of how you proceeded with it, or things will be wrong from here on out because you're only halfway through, which is another criticism, another moving into 
it's both the past and the future in there instead of the present moment. In the past, you didn't set it up right. In the future, now it's not going to go right instead of being in the present moment. And it's, okay, let me reframe here. A great reframe for that moment could be, well, that, that I'm halfway done. I mean, yeah, I don't know where to go next, but hey, I got half of it done. That's better than no taxes done. And it could also be time to reach out and create community. Hi, friend who's really good with numbers. Here's the thing. Halfway through preparing everything I need for my taxes, I honestly don't know what the hell I'm doing. Or it's the YouTube video, or it's the podcast on money management. I think too often with reaching out and creating community, we think community has to be that person we've got on speed dial. Community is the wider world, the books, the resources, the YouTube tutorials, all of that. So those are the two moments I'd say to look at because your experience of the to-do list could be radically changed if it was like, oh, you know what? Last time I tried to do a big, long to-do list, my critic got really activated around how long it was and how much there was to do. Maybe break it up into smaller chunks or maybe just consider every 10 minutes that I work is good enough and that's the reframe. Or maybe I do my taxes or sort out my taxes while watching my favorite movie or with a friend. That's when we get into how do we do it differently instead of the kind of polarized stuck spaces the critic tends to get into when it's really activated of either you did it wrong, setting it up in the past, and therefore in the future, it will continue to be wrong. And they have the the balance of evidence on their side in that terms. The critic is empowered to say, you didn't do it right last time and this error came up. So what's to stop you from making the same errors again? And I think that the historical evidence, true or false, really arms the critic um, with something pretty powerful. And it, it can be hard to step over that and say, I know, but this time that's not going to be the outcome. Or it'll be the outcome again, but I'm really committed to shifting it. Yeah. I think this is the lifeline with when the critic does have evidence for the things you did air quotes wrong. Uh, you know, I mean, I would, I would say that's something that has been my own lifeline because I am somebody, I grew up in a household where when people were angry, it, the anger was out. And then I grew up to become an adult where I can tap into my anger really pretty quickly. And so I'm, I am just like raising my hand right alongside you. I absolutely do the same, some of the same things um, when I, when things don't go the way I would hope they would of getting angry at myself for not setting it up better and making an angry prediction for how now it's all going to suck. And so, you know, of course I have, you know, I, like most humans thought to myself, I don't want to get so angry at myself when I do these things, I'm going to do it differently. And then fell on my butt the first time I didn't do it differently. I look at that. You made this, you said yeah. you're going to do it differently. Then you just did it all. Look at that. And then all the, I can look at all the 20 times you've done it, the same pattern. When's it going to change? Your saving grace is it's going to change when it is ready to change. My critic is using anger about how I did it in the past or what it's going to be in the future as a protective mechanism. I certainly know it's not going to change if I just keep dialing right back into the old pattern. The only way it changes is each time, even if I fall on my butt again and again and again, I get back up and I go, you know what? I am committed to changing this pattern. And I don't care if it takes me until the last breath I draw. Every single day, I will be committed to changing that pattern. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Courage Habit podcast. And thanks to Kate Swoboda for joining me. You can find her book, The Courage Habit, wherever you buy your books. And please shop local when you can. You can also find out information about her, the Courageous Living Coach Certification Program, and other resources at yourcourageouslife.com. And you can find out more about Andy and his work at audioephemera.com. That's audioephemera, E-P-H-E-M-E-R-A.com. Subscribe to this podcast to get all the episodes and share it with a friend. Also, please rate the show and leave a review as it helps others discover the podcast. Join us next episode as we continue our conversation about building a courageous life. Courageous life.